HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's our season four finale, and we're sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys. Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait. You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time. You just sort of stand there and, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand, staring into the refrigerator going, okay, speak to me. Oh yeah, what are you doing with the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery, and I also found a recipe for a celery soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. (laughs) Tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen. And don't forget to subscribe to Meat in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, Today we're going to talk about meat, which is pretty much my favorite subject. Um, Over the past 10 years, I've covered a lot of meat stories. I even wrote a book about meat. Um, And today we are going to be speaking with one of my favorite guests, Leah Douglas. Uh, Leah is a staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, also known as FERN. Um, which is an independent nonprofit newsroom that publishes investigative and explanatory reporting on food, agriculture, and environmental health. Her reporting on corporate power and big business in the food and agricultural sectors has been published in The Guardian, The Nation, The Washington Post, Mother Jones, Time, Fortune, NPR, and other outlets. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thanks so much for coming back. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So uh, what made me want to contact you was that you and Chris Leonard, who uh, is another person whose uh, work I admire enormously and who has been hugely uh, informationally uh, useful to me, uh, it went through his book, The Meat Racket, um, which I interviewed him about a few times um, back in the day. Uh, You guys co-wrote a recent article, uh, which was published in The Guardian, as well as at The Fern, Uh, on price fixing in the poultry industry. So can you give us a little background on the issue and why you guys wrote the article? 
Sure. So our story discussed allegations of uh, price fixing of farmers' wages in the poultry sector. So there's been a lot of lawsuits brought in the past few years uh, in the poultry sector, mostly alleging uh, uh, fixing of prices of chicken for consumers. And it's been a major issue in the sector. And so our story, our contribution to that uh, to that landscape was uh, also allegations that have been brought about the, the fixing of farmers' wages and that some of the same uh, tactics that uh, that distributors and customers and uh, wholesalers have alleged are being used to hike prices up on the consumer end for chicken uh, can also be used to suppress wages for farmers. And uh, yeah. so the, the, the main tool at play there is a data sharing service called AgriStats, and farmers are concerned about the use of that data sharing not only for the wages in and of themselves, but also just for the amount of power that uh, this type of alleged collusion gives uh, the chicken companies when they're in negotiations with farmers. So that was the scope of, of this story. So, right. So, so, so when I first started hearing about these price fixing suits, uh, they were originally, um, the first class action suit was brought in January of 2016 by Maple Vale Farms, which is a New York based distributor. Um, and they filed a lawsuit in Chicago alleging price fixing. And that was the price fixing uh, that you're referring to that has to do with what they were charging. Uh, you know, distributors and grocery store chains and presumably other institutional buyers. And then after that, there were further filings in October of 2016, um, which caught my eye as well. I did a show on those suits. And then in January of 2018, U.S. Foods and Cisco also brought a class action suit alleging price fixing. And, you know, as you just mentioned, in every case, Agristats was the tool with which these companies were able to collude. So what exactly is the information that Agristats provides that allows uh, companies to use it in this way to fix prices? Sure. So Agristats provides extremely granular data about many, many corners of the chicken production sector. And the data that is, goes into Agristats reports is aggregated from about 95% of all poultry companies in the country. And uh, reports are produced every day. So they really give an up-to-the-minute a survey of all this different data about what's going on in the poultry sector. So, for instance, relevant to the Maplevale case and other cases that have been brought by wholesalers and distributors and consumers, Agristats reports can include data about how much poultry companies are charging at the wholesale level uh, for chicken. And those suits allege that that information can be used to set prices artificially high. And our reporting, uh, we were able to consult a leaked Agristats report and confirm that the reports also include data about how much farmers are paid. So that had not previously been reported uh, that Agristats reports include um, information like how much farmers are paid per pound in different right. plants all over the country, um, how that pay is different regionally versus nationally, and so on. So there's all different nuances of, of how those wages are set, included in the Agristats report. That is absolutely breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, really incredible. So earlier this summer, uh, you reported that the Justice Department appeared poised to launch a grand jury investigation into these allegations of price fixing. Um, what what impact does that have on uh, those class action suits, if any? I mean, does this mean 
does this mean that they're actually going to bring criminal charges, for instance, or, um, you know, bust agristats or I don't know what can be done. You know, let's start with that. What does the DOJ investigation suggest? Sure. So this is a pretty uh, surprising update in the sort of landscape of these lawsuits. Um, and antitrust experts have told me that the DOJ's intervention in, in the Maplevale case, which is sort of the cornerstone um, case alleging this price fixing, um, was pretty unusual and, and should be taken fairly seriously. Essentially, what the Department of Justice did was a motion to stop discovery, so the sort of internal investigation happening in the Maplevale case for several months so that they could that it wouldn't interfere with their own grand jury investigation. And we don't know much about the content of that grand jury investigation. We know about the, the, the investigation itself because the filings from the poultry companies revealing that they were subpoenaed in the course of the suit and because of this motion to stay in Maplevale. So um, the Department of Justice did get three months of uh, stayed discovery in the Maplevale case, which basically means they have three months of just their own investigation at the end of September, that, that clock will run up, and I'm sure there'll be more discussion about next steps. And uh, antitrust experts say it could signal criminal charges, uh, and it's, it's, of course, impossible to know until those charges are brought. We don't really have a lens into what's happening at the DOJ, but it is pretty unusual. It is unusual. And also, like, I'm sort of I'm curious, like, how, even though there's price fixing, uh, each one of these entities that are being charged, presumably, and altogether there were 18 plaintiffs, weren't there, in the price fixing? Was Is that yeah. how many? Or was it just the big, you know, uh, Tyson, Coke Foods, uh, you know, Purdue, Sanderson, uh, I guess Pilgrim's Pride would probably come in under that rubric as well. Um, so who, yeah, who exactly yeah. is being charged? Is it more than those guys or is it is it uh, just those those entities? It really depends lawsuit to lawsuit. Um, for the most part, there are a couple lawsuits that are essentially bringing, um, bringing charges against every major poultry producer that has any type of national scale. Um, of course, the biggest of those are the ones you just named, Tyson Food, Pilgrim's Pride, Coke Foods, and so on. Um, but there are several others that are included in that list. Um, as, insofar as the Department of Justice investigation we know about a couple of the companies' subpoenas through their own filings or through confirmation to other reported outlets, um, and we don't know necessarily every single one yet. Right. And when we talk about that potentially leading to some sort of antitrust activity, um, help me connect those dots. Like, how would price fixing uh, amongst those companies, they're all separate companies, so where does the antitrust aspect of this uh, come in? How do, how do, how would they leverage that? Sure. So again, it, it sort of depends on what, what the DOJ, what uh, sort of lens they use to approach it. I did have one antitrust expert tell me that uh, criminal charges, if criminal charges were brought, then the named entity could be the CEO of those companies. Uh, it would have mm. to be some person. And um, so maybe a single or a group of executives. Um, and so it, it, it sort of depends on what their approach is. Right. And and is Agristats named in any of these suits or investigations? I mean, they're sort of, I mean, their job is to provide this information. They're paid for doing this information. Is it, are they criminally liable for providing it or are they somehow, uh, you know, just kind of an, an innocent bystander in this? How, how does it, how do they stand in this? 
Sure. So Agristats is named in all of the lawsuits that have been brought um, from the consumer and wholesaler side and from the farmer side. Um, and Agristats essentially has been investigated in the past at one point by the Department of Justice, and that investigation found no wrongdoing on the part of Agristats, which is another reason why the current investigation is so interesting, because it appears, and again, we can't confirm at this moment, but it appears that this question is being reopened at the Department mm -hmm. of Justice, where previously it was investigated and, and sort of found to be innocuous in the eyes of the Department of Justice. So, of course, Agristats and the poultry companies would say that this is merely a way to share information with one another um, and not being used for as a tool for collusion, which is what's alleged in the suit. But of course, um, many antitrust experts and all the plaintiffs involved in uh, the lawsuits have said that the act of data sharing in and of itself has been the tool that has allowed the artificial hiking up of consumer prices and the suppression of farmer price, farmer wages, excuse me. Yeah, right. But they also you say they claim that the reason that they need this data is presumably to control supply and demand as well. I mean, isn't there I mean, I, not that I'm trying to defend Agristats, but I'm just trying to understand how an agency like or a, a company like Agristats would be uh, considered criminally liable for simply providing uh, data about an industry. And, and aren't there and corollary to that, aren't there other uh, similar um, organizations that provide that same type of granular information to other industries. And in that case, wouldn't this have sort of a chilling effect on that sort of data uh, dissemination? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think that's really at the crux of a lot of these lawsuits. And to my knowledge, I'm not aware of uh, a sort of a comparable service in other sectors. I have asked numerous experts about that because, of course, it would be helpful to know how other industries were sort of interrogating this question. And there could be. Um, I'm just not aware of any. Uh, but uh -huh. sort of the, the hinge that's been used in the past is can this information, the defense that Agristats has used, let's say, is that the information they're providing is up to the minute, but not predictive. So they would say the test for collusion is, you know, are we together saying this is the future price of chicken and this is what the price that everyone will meet in the future. And their argument would be that their data is not sharing that. It's just sharing everything that's happened in the past up to 30 seconds ago, say. Um, right, so right. that's the nuance that's being interrogated by these lawsuits. Right. And they also I also read that they um, that they don't actually name each company. They use a number. But as somebody was quoted in one of the articles I read to prepare for this, it was like, you know, if you if you read these uh, these pages or, you know, get this information for long enough, you start figuring out that company number one is Tyson, company number two is Sanderson, you know, like it doesn't take, uh, you know, a, a Ph.D. to figure out who they're referring to uh, when they produce these results, uh, which is what everybody is looking at to see what, you know, X, Y and Z are using for their price, uh, their price points. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to puzzle this out. I just, I think that's a very interesting part of it because I, like you, I don't know for sure uh, that this type of business exists in other industries uh, or even in other sectors of the uh, agricultural industry, but I, I feel pretty sure that they must because <laughs> like this can't be a one-off, you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, let's 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 just give a little background here just so people because we I wanted to talk. Actually, I completely, you know, botched this outline because I'm all like excited because it's my first show back. But anyway, um, 
Let's just give people a little background on the poultry industry uh, because they are making record-breaking profits right now. And part of that, I think, is one of the reasons that people are beginning to examine these, um, these uh, you know, or bringing these class action suits. So, so to start with, what, what is the average uh, per pound that a poultry grower, a farmer who has, you know, a large chicken house, say 10 or 20,000 birds, what is his average per pound? Sure. So according to the National Chicken Council, which is sort of the biggest uh, industry trade group, uh, as of 2015, the average price per pound was about six cents for growers. And actually, that that is uh, when adjusted for inflation, uh, lower than what farmers were making in the 1980s on a cents per pound basis. So one of the main reasons that farmers have, have been uh, really agitated around uh, the poultry companies and the record-breaking profits is that farmers have actually seen wages steadily decreasing in the past 30 years, despite, of course, uh, inflation adjusting their their wages in the market. Right. And in the meantime, let's remind people that, you know, you, well, let's go through these stats and then I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to give a quick thumbnail of just exactly how these contracts work, because it's a, it's a very specific and ever growing uh, business model for animal agriculture. I mean, the hog industry has followed suit and they're trying to figure out how to make cattle uh, work the same way. So now how much are grocery stores or institutional buyers um, paying per pound wholesale? So right now in 2019, it's about 80 cents a pound uh, for grocery wholesale broilers, which is essentially the, the chicken that you buy at the grocery store. And that's also according to the National Chicken Council. Uh, and for customers, customers are paying about $1.90 a pound. And so how much have we seen pr- uh, prices rise uh, as a result of this, what we would allege to be uh, price fixing? Let's put it this way. How much have prices risen over the last, say, 10 years? Sure. So the lawsuits that are alleging that uh, prices have been kept artificially high for customers all sort of focus on this 10-year range between 2008 and 2016, uh, or I Mm -hmm. guess that's more like eight or nine years. And according to the lawsuits, during that period, there was about a 50% rise in in prices, which the suits would would point to this allegation of, of coordination on pricing to be the cause right, for that rise. Right. And so what kind of profits are, are these large companies taking home in that case, given that we're, we're seeing this, you know, <laughs> significant rise in prices? Meanwhile, let's point out that the cost of uh, the commodities involved, like the feed, have actually fallen because soybean and corn prices have gone much lower since 2010. Sure. So during that same, about that same time period that's, that's focused on in the lawsuits, um, profits have really spiked at these big, uh, the biggest poultry companies. And uh, my colleague, Chris Leonard, who wrote the Guardian story with me, uh, did a big piece for Bloomberg in 2017 that looked at this. Uh, and it looked at agristats broadly and noted that for Tyson Foods between the, in that t- time period, profits rose from 1.6% to nearly 12%. And that at Pilgrim's Pride, uh, they rose from about under 4% to 12.7%. So those are huge Holy spikes in, in just eight or nine years. That's, that is breathtaking. Boy, too bad we didn't buy stock in those companies, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I could retire <laughs> on a 12% increase. Jesus. So... So in the meantime, the average farmers, uh, you know, growers, 
contract growers' income is uh, less, in fact, as you said earlier, you said it was less than it was in the 80s. What is the average income for a contract grower? Um, I mean, it really depends on the, on the size of the operation. I mean, these farms can have anywhere from a few thousand to several million chickens a year. Um, so it really yeah. depends on the size. Um, but many growers will report that they, they are living in poverty conditions or near poverty conditions. So we're really not looking at, at people who are even really able to obtain a middle class lifestyle uh, on the income that they're making. That's right. And, you know, let's remind people that um, just just as an aside, because I really should have asked you to delineate this or in the beginning of the program, but the way it works with with contract growers and correct me if I'm wrong, but they contract with with a big uh, integrator like Tyson or Purdue. And they say, uh, you know, we're going to Purdue will say, I'm going to I'm going to send you, you know, 10,000 chickens a year and this or, or a season uh, you're going to grow out that flock. And um, and then you'll you know make whatever it is we decide to pay you per pound. Now, isn't it also true? And I learned this from Chris Leonard's Meat Racket. Uh, isn't it also true that they can vary the price that they pay the farmers, and they do vary the price that they can pay the farmers depending on how that farmer does uh, in terms of what is called a tournament. Yes, exactly. So farmer pay varies uh, enormously from flock to flock, and. How and why it varies is pretty opaque to the farmer. Um, yeah. Farmers are paid in sort of a zero-sum system where uh, any any rise in wages that a farmer sees is taken out of a neighboring farmer's pockets. So, um, so there's sort of a certain amount of money being distributed to a certain set of farmers, and everyone's competing for that uh, without really knowing why and how their wages are being docked when they are. Right. Right. And also there's also the fact that the, the that the uh, integrator, the big company Tyson, Purdue et al., that they also have the right to demand that a farmer upgrade their facilities, uh, again, with a very opaque uh, rationale behind that. They may decide that their their flock requires a certain type of ventilation system or a certain type of, uh, you know, uh, roosting system or something like that. And farmers are on the hook for providing that or they do not get another flock. Isn't that correct? Yes, exactly. So a a cornerstone of the contract model is that farmers own only their farm and the structures and equipment on their farm. They don't own the chickens, the feed, all of that is controlled by the companies, but they're responsible for by far the riskiest and most expensive part of a farming operation, which is the equipment and the the land itself, which, uh, you know, generally speaking, a farmer will need several million dollars in investment to even open their doors to start uh, growing chickens and and let alone uh, down the line trying to pay that off. Now, when you look at like a Tyson or a Purdue uh, website, and I'm going way off topic here, as I always do. This is why I have to write an outline or I'm just all over the map. But it, it occurs to me right now as we're talking, like they say that, you know, typically their contracts run for 10 to 15 years and that their growers are, you know, making a great wage and that everything is hunky-dory. I just wonder how they are able to continue that fiction uh, when more and more information has emerged uh, saying absolutely to the contrary that that is not what's going on. So I mean, that is just an aside. I don't think I require any sort of <laughs> response unless you have one. But I mean, isn't that isn't that sort of the, the party line is that, you know, Yes, they have to take out loans. Yes, they have to upgrade, but it's only so they can make more money. Isn't that pretty much what they're telling farmers? Sure. I mean, the the companies have absolutely maintained that they have fair and competitive wages for farmers, that their contracts are long enough to provide farmer security, 
and that they're always working to improve the conditions of those contracts. Um, you know, that does that does contradict with what I and many other reporters hear from farmers themselves, which is they essentially live in a constant state of precarity, uh, not knowing often when their next flock will arrive and and having contracts that that uh, that only last the length of maybe one flock or uh, perhaps six months, perhaps a year at the sort of outside. So certainly there are cases that vary from that norm, but I'm still hearing that the norm tends towards those short-term contracts and that level of instability with low wages. And then one final point I want to make, and then we'll take a break and move on to something else. But I, one final point I wanted to make about this was that, um, that farmers, uh, because they don't, they have to take out these massive loans in order to service these birds. Um, if they don't know that they're going to get another flock right away, that has tremendous financial implications for their future because there are no other integrators to go to. In other words, the consolidation of the industry has contracted to the point where you might say, oh, well, I'm not going to work for Tyson anymore because they just screwed me. I'm going to go work for Purdue. But that doesn't happen because Purdue will not take that farmer on possibly or they don't exist in that particular part of the country. Isn't that another a further issue for farmers who work in the contract system? Yes, absolutely. So at a national scale, the consolidation that we've seen in the sector means that there's, you know, four or five, six companies that sort of float to the top and control the vast majority of the market nationally. But at a regional level and a local level, that consolidation is even more extreme. So uh, there might be, you know, a grower in a certain area that only has one or two options of uh, where they can sell to. And uh, they can't simply move from one processor to another to ask for better working conditions or better wages or, or other types of improvements. So the consolidation nationally has is even more exacerbated locally, which has a much more intense impact on the farmers themselves. Right. Absolutely. And that's why we call it consolidation and anti-competitive business practices. Okay, let's take a quick break uh, and we'll be right back with Leah Douglas from The Fern, the Food and Environmental Reporting Network. We're going to be talking more about uh, collusion within the poultry industry. Stay tuned. Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, in case I didn't say that before. Um, And we're talking with Leah Douglas. Uh, We are talking about 
the poultry industry because we are a nation of chicken eaters. I think the statistic that I read uh, seems to be, still seems to be about 9 billion chickens a year that we produce in this country. Um, We don't consume all of them, but we do consume a lot of them. Um, So Leo, another thing that... um, that caught my eye and came out just a few days ago, I think on the 4th of September, I saw an article saying that a new lawsuit has been launched pertaining to the wages of poultry workers. Now, you were implying that this was farmers, but I understood it to be the people who work in the processing facilities. Am I incorrect in that? Yes. So this new uh, reporting that came out just last week about uh, the latest lawsuit against the poultry companies does pertain to uh, the workers at the at the plants themselves. Uh, so our reporting, mine and Chris's reporting, has pertained to farmers' wages, and now this right. new lawsuit pertains to the workers who work in the processing plants. Right, right. So it's uh, it is alleged that 18 companies, including the same big companies we've been talking about this whole uh, you know half hour, uh, have also been colluding on depressing wages and other compensations to hundreds of thousands of workers since uh, 2009. And again, Agristats is kind of the the lead information behind this conspiracy. Um, maybe we should talk about the ice raid on Coke farms in Mississippi, because one of the ways in which uh, all meat processing companies are able to keep wages low is by hiring undocumented workers. Can you comment on that a little bit? Sure. So it's absolutely been the backbone of the poultry industry to rely heavily on immigrant labor and in, in, in many cases, undocumented immigrant labor uh, across the country. And so uh, we this did reach a national profile several weeks ago when uh, ICE raided the Coke Foods factory in Missouri and arrested hundreds of people um, who were working at the plant. And uh, this is uh, just one example of a very common industry trend. And so this new uh, this new lawsuit alleges on behalf of those workers that the companies have been using agrostats uh, along with the allegations that they use agrostats to artificially raise prices for consumers and alongside the allegations that they use agrostats to suppress wages for farmers that the companies are also using agrostats to suppress wages for factory workers. Right. And that's how you get achieve a 12% growth over the course of 8 years. <laughs> Nice work if you can get it, right? I mean, unbelievable. So let's go back to the litigation. Um, what do you think is going to be the end game here? Like now that we know that Agristats uh, is part of, part and parcel of a, you know, basically industry-wide conspiracy, alleged conspiracy to rip off the farmers, uh, suppress wages, and um, raise prices for consumers. What What's going to be the end game of this? Do you think it will resolve in a, in big antitrust suits? Will it resolve in favor of, will it just be that the, that the companies just pay those class action fines? You know, they just brush those because I mean, really a class action suit doesn't really seem to end up changing much of anything in my observation. It's just kind of like, oh, they pay a big fine and then they just go back to business as usual. So what do you think will happen? Well, it's going to be fascinating to see. I mean, Agristats is now fighting off just dozens of lawsuits. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the main place to watch will be this Department of Justice investigation. I think whatever happens there 
if the Department of Justice does decide that there is anti-competitive conduct happening in this sector, uh, that will be a major uh, watershed moment for the sector. Um, on the other hand, if the Department of Justice decides there is not any type of anti-competitive conduct, I'm sure there will be a ripple effect into this on other ongoing litigation. So um, we'll really have to wait and see. And, and I think, you know, it's it's worth noting, again, that the poultry companies and agristats uh, deny all these allegations. So uh, we're going to have to see how it plays out in court. Absolutely. Well, it'll, I mean, under the bar, William Barr, as our uh, district, as our attorney general of the United States, I think it's anybody's guess what's going to happen. I'm, I'm not especially optimistic that, uh, that things will turn out uh, as perhaps you and I might hope, but um, you know, maybe the leopard will change his spots. I, it's just <laughs> one, one doesn't know. Um, but it is certainly interesting that they're even taking up this case, actually. I, I find that kind of encouraging. Uh, if nothing else. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping for the best. But, you know, hopefully you and I will talk about this again as, as the whole process moves forward in the court system, because this really will have quite significant implications for other aspects of the agricultural uh, portfolio, don't you think? I think so. I mean, I think it is fascinating, as you know, as we both noted, that this is happening at the scale that it is now. And I think uh, it's being very closely watched, I'm sure, by by many uh, other agriculture industry watchers, and, and I'll certainly be following it. So um, I think it does have implications for the whole sector and for, for our whole conversation about the agriculture system and how it's structured, which I think is why uh, it's receiving the attention that it is. I think it's a pretty important moment, um, and it's a pretty uh, exciting time for the conversation. Yeah, well, we'll hope it moves forward. So now you have an opportunity to promote yourself shamelessly, Leah Douglas. Go ahead and tell people all about where they can find you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Uh, you can follow my work at uh, thefern.org. That's the Fern uh, website. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Leah J. Douglas. Uh, and I post all my work there and uh, look forward to hearing from you. And thanks. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we'll be in touch very soon. We'll, we'll set up another few uh, things going, depending on what you're working on. I want to hear all about it. Thank you so much, Leah. Sounds great. And thanks to my Thank sponsor. You. And thank you to my engineer, and uh, we'll be back next week with another great show. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please, Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.